From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, December 19th. I'm Marco Werman. Militants in Pakistan kill more workers involved in a polio vaccination effort. This is really shocking. The people who were killed are local health workers who try their hardest to reach children, not just with polio vaccine, but with a whole range of essential health care. We'll have the details, and later a soldier-turned-novelist reflects on his time in Iraq. Until you're actually in that situation, the effect that it has on you emotionally isn't something that you can really be prepared for. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Pakistan, vaccinating kids against polio has become a deadly activity, not because the disease is so tenacious in one of the few countries on earth where polio is still endemic, but because Pakistani militants have taken to murdering those involved in the vaccination campaign. Today, two health workers were shot dead. Five were killed yesterday. Taliban militants have in the past accused polio vaccination workers of being U.S. spies. Now the U.N. Children's Agency, UNICEF, has suspended its vaccination campaign in Pakistan. Dr. Julie Hall is global team leader for UNICEF's polio eradication program. She's just back from Pakistan and joins us from Geneva. First of all, Dr. Hall, our condolences to you on the deaths of uh, these team members of yours. Um, It's so counterintuitive to think of people who are trying to help prevent a debilitating disease uh, getting killed. Why is this happening? Yes, I mean, this is really shocking. The people who were killed are local health workers who try their hardest to reach children, not just with polio vaccine, but with a whole range of essential health care that these children in Pakistan so desperately need. So it is very tragic to see healthcare workers being targeted and murdered like this. And Dr. Hall, what can you tell us on the latest news on the program of the vaccination campaign? Has it been cancelled? So the campaign has been suspended in Sindh uh, and also a number of other parts of the country. The decision to suspend the program or the decision to keep going with the program is a government decision. A Pakistan government. Correct. So that's the government of Pakistan. UNICEF is there to help support the government uh, in delivering these essential vaccines and other health care within Pakistan. So we work very closely with them to support the program and to support the local workers. What are the telling numbers in terms of progress uh, on polio vaccination in Pakistan and uh, reduction? I mean, incidents uh, this year and uh, overall success of your program. So only 15 years ago, we were seeing 20,000 children paralyzed by polio um, in Pakistan. Now the cases are are dramatically down, less than 200 last year, less than that this year. And we were hoping that um, over the next six to 12 months, we would be able to get that down to zero. Now, the program is obviously looking at how we can still achieve that and make sure that no children are ever paralyzed by polio again. 
So, as you know, it was a Pakistani doctor who was jailed after uh, helping the CIA find Osama bin Laden using a hepatitis vaccination program. I'm curious, though, how big a setback was that for you, Dr. Hall, as a public health official? And how can UNICEF reconcile the political challenge to this obviously necessary vaccination campaign? Well, we've been working very hard to build trust within the program, working with community leaders, with religious leaders, with parents, um, with schools uh, to build that trust with the program to be able to ensure that children are actually protected um, from polio using what is a safe and effective vaccine. Dr. Julie Hall, Global Team Leader for UNICEF's Polio Eradication Program. Thank you. Thank you. The instability in Pakistan and its effects on neighboring Afghanistan are top U.S. foreign policy challenges for President Obama. Iraq, on the other hand, is further down the White House worry list following the U.S. troop withdrawals last year. But that could change if Iraq becomes unstable. Some worried that could happen now that Iraqi President Jalal Talabani has suffered a stroke. Officials say the 79-year-old former Kurdish warlord is headed for Germany for treatment. Baghdad-based correspondent Jane Araf is following the updates on Talibani's condition. He's pretty sick, but he seems to have taken a turn for the better. In fact, his spokesman is saying that he's about to be transported to Germany, possibly tomorrow. Now, Germany is where he's had his last several operations. He's been in ill health for quite a while. But given that he was reported dead a couple of days ago, this is obviously much better news. Right. So Jalal Talibani, uh, president of Iraq, where did he come from, politically speaking? Well, he, interesting that you use the term Kurdish warlord because he did actually come from a background as a fighter, as all of the current Kurdish leaders of that generation did. He was a Peshmerga, a fighter in the mountains, and then became a political dissident and became one of the two leading figures in Kurdistan. He is in many ways an integral part of the history of that unique entity known as Iraqi Kurdistan, which many Kurds would like to see known as its own country. Mm. In recent years, he's played a unique role in Iraqi politics as well. So he came for the background of the fighter, but but honed his political skills and is considered really one of the best politicians in the region. I mean, president in Iraq is mostly a ceremonial role. How does he actually kind of exert that power? Well, Iraq lurches from crisis to crisis, and Jalal Talabani has in many cases been the man who has stepped in to try to play a mediating role. And he's able to do that because in an atmosphere where relations are essentially toxic and poisonous between the prime minister and other leading figures, including Masoud Barzani, the president of the Kurdish region, he manages to retain ties that are cordial enough to be able to bring people together, which is a pretty tough thing in a place like Iraq. So he's brokered several recent agreements, the most recent one actually just a few days ago, which is to bring Kurdish forces and Iraqi forces who had been coming to heads in the disputed territories in the north to the bargaining table. And he brokered an agreement to actually have them pull back. He's done that repeatedly over the years. So what does his illness mean for Iraq's stability? I mean, if he's out of the picture for a while in a hospital somewhere for a while, what happens? You know, people have been expecting this for quite a while. He's been in ill health. He has been hospitalized quite a few times, including treatment in the United States. So in a sense, the party and Kurdish politics have 
moved around him and perhaps moved a little beyond him. There will be a power struggle after he's gone. His son has moved back to the Kurdish region from the United States. There are other major players, Barham Saleh, the former Kurdish prime minister. None of them have the weight, the power, weight literally and figuratively, the power and the stature really to take his place. And what a lot of people believe is that Kurdish politics and his own party will in essence be transformed and might not even exist for that much longer after he's gone. So if Talibani dies or has to leave office, who who would replace him in because of ethnic balance of power issues in Iraq? Does it have to be a Kurd? As president, because of that balance of power, which is an agreement brokered by the United States going way back after Saddam Hussein was toppled, it has to be a Kurd unless it's negotiated. But the way it stands now is that position, the presidency, is reserved for the Kurds. Correspondent Jane Araf telling us about the ailing Iraqi president, Jalal Talabani. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a story of a man who got caught up in a chapter of Iraq that many Americans rarely think about anymore. It dates back to the war in Iraq, the first war in Iraq in 1990. Shakur Hamoudi is an Iraqi-American who ran a gourmet food market in Columbia, Missouri. Now he's in a federal prison in Kansas. He was charged with violating U.S. sanctions by sending money to his relatives in Iraq in the 1990s. Hamoudi's family is now petitioning President Obama to reduce his punishment. Reporter Anna Boyko Wyrock has his story. During the first Gulf War, President George Bush appeared on TV. We have no argument with the people of Iraq. The country was under UN sanctions. Meanwhile, in Columbia, Missouri, Lemia Najem and her husband, Shakur Hamoudi, had migrated to the U.S. They heard Bush on TV and thought they understood what he said. Today, Najem looks back, resigned. I was never imagined that. Helping others is breaking the law. In 1990, U.S. sanctions prohibited money transfers to Iraq. Earlier this year, Nejem's husband, Hamoudi, began serving three years in prison for violating those rules by sending money to his relatives in Iraq and helping other Iraqis in Missouri do the same. Over nine years, the transfers added up to nearly $300,000. Nejem said the idea came in 1992, when her brother-in-law called from Iraq. They expected news about a new baby. We received a call. We were asking about our relatives. And then they said, no, the baby, uh, we lost the baby. Uh, We said, uh, why you lost the baby? What's happened? They did not want to tell us first. And then when we kept asking, they told us that, yeah, because she had infection and we could not find the medicine for her. Hamoudi's sister-in-law couldn't afford $10 antibiotics to treat an infection and prevent a miscarriage. Nejem said she and her husband had to help. You can never enjoy the life and sit and be happy, and you know that your family, they are suffering. In court, Hamoudi pled that when he started sending money in 1994, he knew it was illegal. Hamoudi couldn't speak from prison for this story, but Inside Columbia Magazine interviewed him this summer. I felt obligated and responsible to extend a hand of compassion and mercy to my family in Iraq. So I was sending them some relief funds so as they could buy food and medicine locally there. No one's ever proved that Hamoudi's money supported Saddam Hussein's government. But U.S. officials argue that Hamoudi chose to skirt the rules instead of sending aid legally, 
Don Ledford is a spokesman for the Department of Justice, which prosecuted the case. Um, so I'll just start at the top and go through. He read an official um, statement. When cash is transferred across international borders, it's difficult, if not impossible, to trace its destination. There's no way to know whether those funds wind up in the hands of terrorists or innocent family members. For that reason, the very act of smuggling funds in violation of U.S. sanctions is necessarily a crime. Mr. Hamoudi chose to commit a federal crime for which he has been justly sentenced by the court. With Hamoudi now in prison, his family is stumbling through life without him. Nejem, Hamoudi's wife, teaches Arabic to second graders. She's never been apart from her husband for so long. We're always together and he's always there to help me, support me, so uh, he's a big part of my life. Yeah, most of these are probably not made in the U.S., so they don't have that. Hamoudi's oldest son, Awais Abdul Kafi, is in medical school and now also runs the gourmet grocery store his dad started. He thinks his father's case is ridiculous. Makes no sense. You're taking a very productive citizen, a very highly educated person who did a noble and humanitarian deed. You're imprisoning him. Hamoudi's 15-year-old son, Abdul Rahman Abdul Kafi, said life isn't as fun without his dad. Usually we would like sit as a family after prayer and talk, just say what happened that day and stuff like that. It was just the talking that made it feel better, made the, like, the day finish at a good rate. Let's see. Yeah. Craig Van Maitri is a pro bono lawyer in Colombia working for Hamoudi. He flips through a petition that asks Obama to shorten the sentence. It has thousands of signatures and letters from people Hamoudi helped. See, here's a letter in Arabic that's... Uh, but Van Maitri knows it's a long shot. Obama has only commuted one sentence in his term. There are literally thousands of people clamoring for the president's attention and penetrating that noise to single out this one case is going to be a very, very difficult task. Hamoudi's son, Owais, said it's more than that. We believe that God kind of tests us. It's kind of a test of how faithful and resilient we are. In an email, a Justice Department official said Hamoudi's petition application is being considered, but couldn't estimate when there would be a decision. For The World, I'm Anna Boyko-Wyrock in Columbia, Missouri. Just ahead, another view of Iraq from the U.S., this one from a young American novelist who served there in the Army. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's been a year since the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq, but we still have ways to re-examine what our troops went through there. Take Kevin Powers' debut novel, The Yellow Birds. Like the narrator of his book, Kevin Powers was a soldier in Iraq. He served in the U.S. Army in 2004 and 2005 in Tal Afar and in Mosul, where he worked with bomb disposal squads and as a machine gunner. The novel tells the story of the relationship between two privates and the traumas the two men suffer in Iraq. Here's author Kevin Powers reading from the novel, a passage describing the feelings of futility that haunt the narrator when he finally sees battle. I thought of my grandfather's war how they had destination and purpose, how the next day we'd march out under a sun hanging low in the plains in the east, 
We'd go back into a city that had fought this battle yearly, a slow, bloody parade in fall to mark the change of season. We'd drive them out. We always had. We'd kill them. They'd shoot us and blow off our limbs and run into the hills and wadis, back into the alleys and dusty villages. Then they'd come back, and we'd start all over by waving to them as they leaned against lampposts and unfurled green awnings while drinking tea in front of their shops. While we patrolled the streets, we'd throw candy to their children, with whom we'd fight in the fall a few more years from now. Now, the narrator of your story is uh, Private John Bartle. He's 21. He's slogging through these dusty villages in Iraq, just trying to survive and hold himself together emotionally. Back in the States, before he left, uh, he made a rash promise to a buddy's mother that he'll bring her son home alive. The odds of living and dying, of being a statistic, it must make many military families want some sort of guarantee that their kid won't be that number. Where did that idea come from? You know, I was interested in looking at the ways in which we get ourselves into situations that we haven't really necessarily examined all the possible outcomes of. What do you do when you have made a commitment that you haven't thought through? And one that that would feel like it was worth making. And of course, in the story, John does it quickly and rashly and and almost as a a way of sort of conveniently getting out of this awkward conversation. Right. I I think he comes to believe that it's something important. In a way, it's almost the only thing that's kind of keeping him going and uh, sort of the fixation of his life after he comes back. Right. The repercussions uh, sort of turn the novel into this dark confessional about what your psyche and emotions uh, go through once you're in Iraq and then also when you're back. When you returned from Iraq, how did writing about all of this help you deal with everything on your mind? You know, I've considered myself a writer since the time I was probably 12 or 13. It's just sort of the way that I've tried to understand the world. And, And even immediately after I got back, I wasn't really ready to start looking at that experience yet. But when I was, maybe a year or so after I got back, I you know, started writing poems again and stories again. And, and again, it's just this kind of idea that, you know, empathy is an act of the imagination. And, and by using our imagination, we can sort of discover things about ourselves and our relationships to people that maybe we couldn't if we were looking at it in a more sort of clinical way. You know, Kevin, uh, maybe the harshest reality both Bartle and Murph have to embrace in, in, in this novel is that if you want to survive this kind of combat, the only way to do it, as the platoon sergeant tells him, is not get killed, but to get used to killing. He says, you've got to find that nasty streak. That's a pretty grim bit of advice if you want to survive. How did that change you as a person? There's this idea of what war will be like before you go. And of course, you're trained and the training is effective to to a certain point. But, you know, it's just one of those things that until you're in actually in that situation, the effect that it has on you emotionally isn't something that you can really be prepared for. The kind of double-edged sword of being a human being is we, we do have this capacity to adapt to almost any environment, even if that environment is uh, essentially the, the worst thing that human beings can participate in, I mm. think, which is, which is war. Why did you enlist? Yeah, I, I was certainly idealistic. I love my country. My father and my grandfathers had served in the military, not as a career, but just kind of doing their bit, as they say. Mm. My story with regard to my enlistment is very similar to a lot of other people's, a sort of belief in military service being an honorable endeavor, a kind of family tradition. It felt very natural to me. There aren't really any Hollywood 
moments of heroism in the, in this war novel. And you make a point of saying this is not our grandfather's war. Do you think with each successive generation, the experience of going to war is becoming more damaging and less moral, perhaps? You know, we really can't hide behind this vision of war as this kind of glorious, heroic endeavor, because we just have more information. It's, it's sort of undeniable what it really is. I'm not a politician by any means, but, but given the state of the world that we're in, it, it's harder and harder for me to imagine a kind of easy black and white good war as they talked about World War II. Um, and there's this scene in the novel where a commanding officer tells uh, soldiers getting ready for battle, you may never do anything as important again in your entire lives. Is that a kind of statement, uh, whether it was real or not, is that a statement that you wrestled with during your time deployed in Iraq? If you set aside any sort of ideas about the sort of the justness of our involvement in Iraq, I mean, the practical reality of it is you're one person and, you know, you're depending on people for your immediate physical safety and other people are depending upon you for their immediate physical safety. So, I mean, in that respect, it it is important in a way that very little else can be. And, and, And I think, again, I mean, that's something that people struggle with and that I struggled with when I came home, this idea of what in my life is going to matter that much again? Hmm. Uh, so I think that's just one sort of one of the threads of that of the difficulty of coming home is wrestling with that. The war in Iraq has pretty much vanished from the headlines this year. But I'm wondering what images, what moments would you like Americans to, to remember, to take away from what happened there? Well, I mean, I think to look at it as comprehensively as possible, to be to be honest about the things that happened there and look honestly at it. I mean, terrible, awful things happened there, but, but there were, there were actually moments when we were able to, to do good. For me, it's important to just acknowledge the, the complexity of, you know, our collective experience to try to, to look at it as a whole and to not look away from any one single aspect of it. Author Kevin Powers, his novel is called The Yellow Birds. Great to speak with you, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. We have chapter one of the novel on our website. You can read from the yellow birds at theworld.org. Before we take a break, there's just enough time for our geo quiz, and we're off to the France-Belgium border. The two countries share a 385-mile-long border that extends south from the English Channel, or as they call it, La Manche. We're looking for a Belgian village located just about a mile inside that border. It's a village of a couple thousand residents. Many are from somewhere else, like French movie star Gérard Depardieu, who recently bought a house there. The French government accuses the actor of dodging taxes. Depardieu admits he's exasperated with the French government and its very high taxes on the very wealthy. So can you name this village in southern Belgium with the new celebrity resident? We'll have the answer and visit the village later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the conflict in Mali has all but destroyed the tourism industry there, and later, how Ethiopians get their nicknames. The brother is sweet. It's because uh, my mom used to eat uh, a lot. 
sweet things when she is pregnant, then we call him sweet. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Now we go to Mali, something most foreigners have stopped doing. They've been scared away ever since the military coup in March, followed by the radical Islamist takeover in the north. The State Department has warned against all travel to Mali right now. Tourism used to be Mali's third largest industry. Now that has collapsed. Many families who rely on it are suffering. Bonnie Allen recently visited Segu, about 150 miles north of the capital Bamako. She didn't have much company. I'm searching for a tour guide on a dusty street in Segu. This alone is unusual. Normally, guides loiter outside hotels and restaurants, eagerly wooing any foreigner who enters this charming riverside town. These days, they've all but given up. I finally find a group of them, all young men, playing cards, smoking cigarettes, and drinking tea. One of them tells me, ever since the crisis began, we're sitting around doing nothing. We are not doing anything. We don't have a job. We don't know what to do. We all live off tourism. When there is no Westerners, we just sit. All the youth are unemployed. Frankly, we are fed up. As I carry on, street peddlers seem surprised to see me. Suleiman Dambale is hawking miniature xylophones. He's disappointed I'm a journalist, not a customer. Did you sell anything today? No, he says, nothing. At the once popular Hotel Joliba, the manager, a Canadian named Gino Peltier, sits on the empty patio with a cup of coffee. People would leave Bamako and stop overnight in Segu. So you would see like 60 or 70 people just coming down and filling up the hotels in Segu. And now since the, the crisis, since the coup d'etat, I haven't seen any tourists. In the past six months, maybe I saw maybe three or four crossing by in front of the hotel. That's, that's about it. He says they've laid off half of their staff since March and stopped buying vegetables from local vendors for the restaurant. It's an economic crisis. If I don't buy, then the, the, the woman that's selling the carrots or the salad, she doesn't sell. So this has an impact also on her family and etc. I'm now sitting in a wooden boat called a panas on the Niger River. This is something tourists used to pay 600 U.S. dollars to do, making a three-day journey up the river to Timbuktu. The troubles actually began in 2009 when an al-Qaeda affiliate operating in the north kidnapped four European tourists and later executed one. Foreign embassies started issuing travel warnings. Now, with a military coup and radical Islamist militants occupying the north, Mali's tourism sector has collapsed. On the river shore, thousands of orange clay pots are piled high. Mariam Kita tells me the profits from selling pottery to foreigners used to feed 10 people in her family, including her four children, her husband, his parents and her parents. Her husband lost his job as a teacher because families can no longer afford to pay school fees. The couple even had to pull their 12-year-old son out of school. 
Personally, I feel sick, she says. If Westerners were coming to buy my pottery, then I would make some profit and help my husband out, pay for rent, electricity, and provide for the family. But it's difficult. As I leave, I buy a small round pot for a dollar, a tiny fraction of what most tourists spent in the past. Mali used to get 170,000 tourists a year and each spend on average $100 a day. Without that cash influx, you can see the effect on Malian families in the empty streets, empty pockets, and empty stomachs. For the world, I'm Bonnie Allen, Segu, Mali. We do have a Mali tourism flashback. Bonnie took a sightseeing trip in northern Mali a few years back. She sent us some photos from Jenny and Timbuktu. You can see them at theworld.org. No matter where you go around the globe, names have meaning. What you call someone matters. That's especially true in Ethiopia, where people have long used nicknames known as house names. But as the world's Anders Kelto reports from Addis Ababa, the nature of those names is changing. On the campus of Addis Ababa University, a group of students walks to class under the shade of eucalyptus trees. My name is Kalkidan Helomar. I am 90 years old, 19. I'm a journalism and communication broadcast journalism student. Kalkidan was born here in Addis Ababa. When she was about a year old, her parents started calling her by her house name. That's a nickname that family members give to one another. Uh, my house name is Mito. M-I-T-U. Mito. Yeah. And what does that mean? I didn't know the meaning. Even my parents didn't know what it means. Do you, do you like your house name? I really like it. <laughs> I... Uh, mm, when someone calls me Kalkidan, I didn't even turn my face. Me Too is a fairly typical house name for someone Kalkidan's age, says Zele Alam Leyu. He's a professor of linguistics at the University of Addis Ababa. We have these short and precise home names like Tutu, Chuchu. And this in linguistics, we call it reduplication. Uh, you just reduplicate or double a syllable, Li Li. Reduplication is common in many languages, from Chinese to Finnish to Maori. But Zele Alem says it's a new phenomenon in Ethiopia. For centuries, Ethiopians have used long and colorful names with symbolic meanings. They bestow blessings or well wishes or define the relationship between parent and child. Zele Alem says that's still the case in rural villages. If you go to the rural dwellers, they still enjoy giving names, these long names with meaning, right, with expressive power. They call them like Yene Geta or Getae, my lord, Yene Gasha or Gashae, my shield, Yene Shagga or Shaggae, this is my beautiful or my pretty. Zelelem says no one knows exactly why these traditional house names are being replaced by shorter, cutesier names, but he suspects it has to do with Western influence. Ethiopia was relatively isolated from the West for centuries, but Europeans started coming here in large numbers in the 20th century. When they came to Ethiopia as missionaries or, or as visitors, travelers or, or scholars, you know, they came with their languages, right? 
And uh, as a result of contact among speakers of different languages, uh, we inherit names and from other languages, and we donate probably names to other languages. Zelenalem says it's a shame that so many Ethiopians are now using house names that don't have meaning and don't have Ethiopian roots. But he acknowledges that there's a practical advantage to the shorter names, and that might explain their popularity in the cities. It is easier to call your uh, baby girl Titi or Lily than uh, Yelfagash or uh, Yatreda, which is, which is relatively uh, very long. On campus, first-year student Iosius Girma says all the kids in his family have short house names. The brother is sweet, his name is. Sweet? Yeah, it's because uh, my mom used to eat uh, a lot sweet things when she is pregnant. Then we called him sweet. Okay. And my, my another sister, she is uh, Amen. Like, like from the Bible, Amen? Yeah, yeah, Amen. Let it happen. Iosia says his own house name, Pio, doesn't have a meaning. It was just something his sister started calling him. But the fact that it has no meaning doesn't bother him. And he says it certainly doesn't make him feel any less Ethiopian. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Addis Ababa. You can check out more Ethiopian house names and hear about one man who has four of them. That's in our podcast on language, the world, and words. Just go to theworld.org. It's fun coming up with house names for people. Try it. Take French actor Gerard Depardieu. Obelix could be his house name. Depardieu is the voice of the cartoon character Obelix in movies. Right. Well, Obelix says he's done with France forever. Yes, Depardieu is moving out of his country and taking his multi-million dollar fortune with him. The actor is making a new home for himself across the border in Belgium, in a tiny farming village called Nesha, to be precise. That's the answer to our geo-quiz, by the way. Nesha is quiet, a far cry from Paris, but what it lacks in excitement, it makes up for in lower taxes. The world's Jerry Haddon explains. Nesha is one of those rural European villages you'd miss by blinking. No restaurant, no hotel, just a cluster of houses, a church, and this pharmacy. On a late evening, I go inside to ask the question hundreds of other reporters have already asked. Have you seen your new neighbor yet, Monsieur Depardieu? The owner waves me away. Too many interviews already, he says. The interview started several weeks ago when Depardieu bought a house here, just a few hundred yards from the French border and an hour's train ride from Paris. His motive? To avoid a new French wealth tax of 75%. Bonjour, bonjour. In Nasha's other store, a bakery, a worker says she doesn't get why Depardieu's arrival has become such a big deal. Wealthy French have been moving to Belgium for years, she says. All you have to do is look at our capital, Brussels. Has she seen Depardieu yet? No, she says. This is the only bakery, and he hasn't come in yet. We're not even sure which house he bought, she says. What is certain is that many of the actors' new neighbors will also be French. More than a quarter of Nesha residents are expats, Gauls who enjoy the cold drizzle of the Belgian countryside. Oh, and the much lower taxes. That's what Lord France's richest man, Bernard d'Arnaud, to Belgium years ago. French crooner Johnny Holiday gave it a shot. A bunch of soccer stars have done the same thing. Each time a big name makes the move, it causes consternation at home. But nothing like the brouhaha that Depardieu has kicked up. Ah non, c'est un peu court, jeune homme. On pouvait dire, oh Dieu, bien des choses en somme en variant le ton. 
for starters, Depardieu is beloved in France. He got an Academy Award nomination for portraying one of the most well-known French characters, Cyrano de Bergerac. Depardieu's departure has shocked and rankled the French. Political scientist Françoise Trefus says as the French economy teeters on the edge of crisis, people expect the nation's wealthiest to step up. As the situation is very bad, I think that the government is right when asking people to pay more taxes, and mainly the richest one. It's only for two years, you know, that uh, this uh, big amount of taxes is supposed to be paid. I find uh, very uncivic to refuse this. If you are rich, you can pay. Especially Depardieu, she points out, whose career has benefited from huge government subsidies for the French film industry. The government agrees. It's taken Depardieu's departure as a slap in the face. French Prime Minister Jean-Marc Ayrault told French television last week that although Depardieu's a big star and loved, stepping just over the border to avoid taxes is a pathetic move. Pathetic, Depardieu shot back in a letter in a Sunday newspaper. You can have your pathetic passport back. I renounce my French citizenship. The government no doubt thought its attack on Depardieu would resonate with ordinary taxpayers who can't or won't leave the country. But the tit-for-tat has backfired. At an outdoor Christmas market in the northern French city of Lille, about 15 minutes from Nechin, a crepes vendor named Jean-Michel Derue applauds Depardieu. He says if he were rich, he'd move to Belgium too. Has Depardieu killed anyone, he asks? Has he stolen money from anyone? No. In fact, over his career, he's paid something like $200 million in taxes. And on top of that, they make him out to be pathetic. As the scandal grows, the mayor of Nechin, David Senesal, says he's just watching, wide-eyed, from the sidelines. He doesn't get why people are so upset by one man's move to save taxes when big corporations do it in Europe all the time. Many of the world's biggest high-tech companies and multinationals, for example, set up their headquarters in tax havens such as Luxembourg, where their tax bill can be as low as 2%. We need to harmonize taxes, Senesal says, with a more global approach. Instead of letting each country set its own rate, that creates problems. Until that happens, though, Senesal smiles. He's pleased to welcome Gérard Depardieu to town. He calls him the Stradivarius in his small but growing orchestra. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Nechien, Belgium. A quick update now on a story we covered a couple of weeks ago about a vineyard in Tuscany that was a scene of a crime most foul. Someone had broken into the cellar, opened the taps, and poured the equivalent of 80,000 bottles of choice wine down the drain. The wine was a rich red made from Sangiovese grapes and can cost hundreds of dollars a bottle. At the time, no one was sure who did this, but it appears Italian police may have cracked the case. They've named a disgruntled former employee of the winery as the suspected culprit. Andrea de Ghisi, they said, broke into the cellar sometime between December 2nd and 3rd and opened the taps on 10 huge barrels containing six years' worth of wine. His motive? Officials say he did it because his boss had scolded him for not taking proper care of the machinery. Plus, de Ghisi was apparently also miffed because an apartment on the estate had been given to another employee. De Ghisi had been a suspect from the beginning. Police had tapped his cell phone and heard him talking about washing wine out of his clothes. His jeans, officials say, had been sent to a lab in Rome to check for the presence of polyphenols, which are found, of course, in red wines. 
It's not exactly CSI, but Italian law enforcement seems to be going an extra mile in getting to the bottom of a case that gives new meaning to alcohol abuse. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Carol Hills follows political cartoons around the globe for the program. And Carol, we know that political cartoons aren't always funny, and that's not really the point, is it? It's editorial illustration. So we're making that point today because you've been finding a lot of these illustrators around the globe have been focusing on the shootings in Newtown, Connecticut. So I guess these artists are giving guns and all their forms a pretty heavy workout. What are you seeing? Well, I'm seeing a lot of attitudes towards the U.S. about guns, meaning that the perception by a lot of cartoonists, mostly across Europe, Australia, Canada, uh, that's the cartoons I've seen so far, really. A lot of it is about their perception that we're just obsessed with guns. And so a lot of the cartoons speak to that, whether it's um, showing the Lincoln Memorial and Lincoln has a, a pistol in each hand or a sort of image from the 50s of family sitting around a breakfast table and they're eating guns for breakfast and the dog has a bunch of ammo in his mouth and the father's smoking a, a pipe, but it's a gun. There's a, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Kids with backpacks, you know, leaving for school in the morning and uh, attached to the backpack is an American flag and a gun. So there's a lot of that. There's also a lot of images about the NRA and its power, a sense that no matter how horrible this thing has been, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is just too powerful. And even someone like Obama is not going to be able to persuade them or get around their power to pass any kind of meaningful gun control. So so that's it. And and then just a lot of very painful and poignant images, whether it's the um, American flag with stars and instead of stars, their bullet holes or their little children. And a very moving one, a final one, which is a coat room at a classroom, and the backpacks are still hung there with the names of the victims and their little stuffed animals and things like that. So it's, it's I think cartoonists have struggled, as have we all. But what comes through over and over again is that the United States is obsessed with guns. And Carol has posted some of the images she's been talking about on our Tumblr page. You can find them at pritheworld.tumblr.com. Okay, if you had to choose between New York or Paris, what would it be? French graphic designer Varam Muratian has been pondering that. He's produced a book of prints called Paris versus New York, a tally of two cities. It's a collection of clever cultural comparisons side by side. Here's the world's Adeline Sear. Varam Muratian's book, Paris versus New York, is an affectionate tribute to the two cities he loves most. He grew up in Paris, but he often traveled to New York with his family, thanks to his mother's job. We had the chance to have a mom working at TWA, so I think travel is my first goal in life, to just work, to get some money, and then to get a plane ticket. Muratin did many transatlantic crossings, but when he turned 30, he decided to settle down in New York for a while. He'd been working on a graphic blog, witty comparisons of sights and scenes in New York and Paris. Then he decided to turn the blog into a book. Like the blog, it was called Paris versus New York, a tally of two cities. It's a take on an old book title. Exactly. It was a pun on the Dickens' great novel, which were actually based in London and Paris. So in a way, it was a new century kind of story to tell, and it was my story in a way. And Muratian was determined to tell his story to New York publishers. He went knocking on doors until someone paid attention. 
Paris versus New York became a book and such a successful one in France and in the U.S. that it's recently been released in an expanded coffee table version, the complete series of the two cities. The book presents New York images on the right-hand page and Paris images on the left. When I met Muratin in Boston, he showed me one of his favorite sets of images from the book, one that boils down the cultures of New York and Paris to creative emoticons. So here we have a gray page on the left with a kind of sour face, not a happy face, saying no. And on the New York side, uh, orange background with a yellow circle um, for the face and a very white grin, bright mm -hmm. white grin saying yes. So tell me what that means. It's a way of saying that it's amazing how even if it's crisis time or anything else, the optimism you can get in New York because of just the mood in general is about don't show too much of grumpiness. And the French want to say, I don't like this, a bit negative about things. But it's an attitude and doesn't mean to take it too seriously as well. So that's why there's a little caption under it saying, I love nothing, I'm Parisian. J'aime rien, je suis Parisien. And the other one is for New York, never take no for an answer, which is actually something much more business oriented. I think it's something I experienced many, many times and... I kind of like the two attitudes. I don't want to choose and saying, oh, I prefer the yes version. I like the fact that sometimes it can be hard to get something in Paris. The go-getter attitude of New Yorkers is something he saw firsthand after Hurricane Sandy hit the city in late October. Muratin was in town for a book signing, but that was canceled. So was New York's marathon. But the marathoners took part in a run in Central Park to raise money for Sandy's victims. And Muratin joined in. Muratin's book shows some of this upbeat spirit. For instance, a print showing two versions of workers on a break. New Yorkers are jogging, while Parisians are smoking. And there are many more winks at contrasts between the two cultures. There's the ultimate symbol of urban lifestyle, a cup of coffee. In Paris, a tiny cup of espresso. And in New York, a giant tumbler of Americano to go. See also baguette versus bagel, Can Can versus Gaga, Marie Antoinette versus Madonna, and one of my personal favorites, an elderly woman hunched over a cane on the French side, facing her American counterpart, standing straight in a tracksuit. But Muratin says the idea is not to mock anybody or anything. It's not to say that what we have in Paris, you don't have it in New York and vice versa. It was a way of saying how the two were influencing each other. The main thing was also to be able to show something like a dialogue, something like a bridge between the two cities. This bridge also materializes with the tete-a-tete -tete of two grand pianos meeting in the middle of the page. On the left, a black one with the name Debussy. On the right, a white one with the name Gershwin two composers who embody the spirit of Muratian's beloved cities. For the world, this is at Linsi. We've got some of Muratian's witty images on our website, theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International